welcome to this uh, round table uh, organized by uh, LSE Ideas here at the London School of Economics, supported by the Airy Neve Trust Fund and the LSE Annual Fund, for which we give very great uh, thanks. The topic tonight, as you can see, is the lessons of Northern Ireland for contemporary counterterrorism policy. I'd also add to that conflict resolution and peace building. Um, it's a subject of much interest, though sometimes the broader lessons uh, of what happened in Northern Ireland, um, and is still happening in Northern Ireland, uh, often seem to be unique, sui generis. And one of the things we're going to try and tease out tonight is whether or not there are lessons from Northern Ireland, whether or not there are consequences of Northern Ireland which have broader lessons for conflicts and uh, troubles in other parts of the world. Maybe ask the question, is there just one Irish question or maybe several? Is it just only about Ireland? That's the broad theme of tonight's uh, round table. Let me first introduce myself. Uh, my name is Professor Michael Cox. Um, my interest in Northern Ireland is both personal and uh, intellectual and professional. It's personal <laughs> because I got married there. It's personal because all my four children were born there. And it's, it's professional because I taught at uh, Queen's University Belfast between 1972 and 1994 before moving on to Wales, before moving here. So this is not just for me an academic issue. It's something very personal and uh, something which, which I've been involved with many others, of course, over, over my life. Let me introduce the more important people for tonight, the speakers. The first speaker will be Lord David Trimble, a key player in the Northern Ireland peace process, an academic lawyer at Queen's University Belfast. We, we coincided and later leader of the Unionist Party. On 1st of July 1998, he was elected first minister of Northern Ireland in the new Northern Ireland Assembly. And in October 1998, in recognition for the work he had done with others, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, that's with John Hume, for their efforts combined to find a peaceful solution to the conflict in, in Northern Ireland. The Nobel Institute noted at the time, words worth remembering, that as the leader of one of the traditional parties in Northern Ireland, David Trimble showed great political courage when at a critical stage of the process he advocated solutions which led finally to the Belfast Good Friday Peace Agreement. Uh, Martin Manzer, on, my, on the far left there, uh, Dublin uh, and later Oxford educated, an historian, son of an historian, as I'm sure he's often reminded, Nicholas Manzer, and a policymaker as well with long policy interest in Northern Ireland and another key player in making the peace process possible. And Martin has written on this, the legacy of history for making peace in, in Ireland. He'll be our second speaker. The third speaker uh, here, <laughs> if you could wave, uh, is Jonathan Powell, um, foreign office, but then went on to become chief of staff to Tony Blair uh, after Tony Blair became Prime Minister in 1997 and re-engaged in the Northern Ireland peace process. And Jonathan in that role um, played a key part again, one of the other key players, which led to the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, on which he has written, of course, uh, Great Hatred, uh, Little Room, Making Peace in Northern Ireland, his role and part in that peace process. 
And last but by no means least, my old friend, not too old as you may notice, here, Professor Richard English. We were good colleagues and friends uh, at Queen's in the Department of Politics in the old days. Uh, Richard remained there until I think this year, or beginning of last year. He's now at St Andrews, the foremost historian of Ireland. He's written two great books, Armed Struggle, which I think is now regarded clearly as one of the definitive, is the definitive history in the IRA and a wonderful book on Irish nationalism called Irish Freedom. I'm sure you'll agree with me. We've got a great panel tonight. I wonder if we can give them a nice warm welcome. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, David, I think we'll begin with you if you want to come up here and then we'll, um, we'll move on. Thank you. Um, I want to actually start by challenging the concept of, of lessons. Um, when the title of this is Lessons of Northern Ireland. And I think one of the key points which I would urge on anyone who's looking at the situation in Northern Ireland is not to go there looking for simple lessons. Don't look for something, you know, they did that there so that worked so we'll do this here. I think that's not the way to approach this situation. Now, I'm not dissuading people from studying the situation in Northern Ireland, or indeed situations elsewhere. Indeed, I think the more of these situations people study, the better. In the run-up to the negotiations beginning, the serious negotiations beginning in Northern Ireland, a number of us were invited out by the South Africans, uh, who gave us a detailed exposition of their experience. I found it fascinating. I went there, actually hoping to get some guidance as to how we might conduct uh, negotiations. In the event, uh, we just borrowed one thing from the South Africans. It was the concept of sufficient consensus, although we defined it differently to the way they had defined it. All the other bits of detail they told us about their negotiating process, very interesting, but turned out not to be relevant for our experience. But nonetheless, I find the example of being there and talking to people involved in their process, uh, you know, very interesting. Uh, maybe giving one some insights into how things might move, but recognising it was a different situation to ours. Similarly, someone coming, dealing with another situation elsewhere might very well look at ours, might very well get some insights, but each situation has to be looked at in its own merits. And to approach a situation through the prism of some other case is, not, is to result in not giving the situation you're looking at the, the attention it deserves and not treating its own circumstances with the weight that it deserves. That, the particular circumstances of the situation you're looking at must be your starting point at all times. So, more than that, one of the things we did, uh, as everybody famously knows, we ended up talking to terrorists and indeed ended up including former terrorists in the administration. So that's one of the things obviously one has to look at. Here, the term talk is used too loosely. Uh, there are various forms of communication. Uh, a, any government will have to, dealing with the terrorist problem, will want to know what motivates the terrorists and what the terrorists are thinking and doing. And you can't get that information without there being some communication somewhere along the line. But that's a very different thing from a government itself engaging with persons involved in violence. And there, and it's a very different thing from engaging with persons involved in violence to then negotiating with them. And that, I think, is something a government should do very, very cautiously. Mm -hmm. We had in 1972 
shortly after direct rule was imposed, Willie White, White Law was the first uh, Secretary of State. Uh, he uh, responded too positively to a suggestion uh, that he should talk to the IRA, and it did actually uh, reach out to the IRA and uh, persuaded them to have a, a ceasefire, which after a few days, uh, an IRA delegation was flown over here to London uh, and they ended up down in Chain Walk uh, for negotiate for talks, uh, which then got nowhere. Uh, the IRA merely arrived to uh, state its demands, basically to give the British government an ultimatum, expecting the British government to respond to it, and walked out saying, oh, that it was clear that the British government didn't, were not ready for negotiations, and so they went back to intensify the violence. Uh, those, that form of engagement uh, was clearly a mistake. You might note with interest that the IRA delegation in 1972 that was flown over included one Martin McGuinness and one Jerry Adams. Uh, but that's, that's just a small detail, by the way. <laughs> you know. So that form of uh, interaction with terrorists was a mistake. The interaction we had with them was one that was highly conditioned, highly conditioned as to the circumstances in which there would be the interaction and highly conditioned in, into when they would be allowed into talks and indeed highly conditioned as to the outcome of the talks. And those conditions were first laid down clearly in what's called the Downing Street Declaration of December 1993. Uh, and although a lot of the language of the Downing Street Declaration was one uh, designed to make nationalists feel comfortable reading it, when you got down into it and looked at what was there, you saw that clearly enshrined within that was what we call the consent principle, uh, that, in other words, no solution is going to be imposed on Northern Ireland. It's a matter for the people of Northern Ireland to decide there was also clear requirements in that for uh, a commitment to exclusively peaceful and democratic means. In other words, there had to be a cessation of violence, not a temporary one, but a permanent ending of violence, and a commitment to the democratic process and a willingness to accept the outcome of a negotiation. That's all there in the Downing Street Declaration, and there's quite a bit when you think about those, that requirement to be committed to exclusively democratic means and also the acceptance but at the end of the day, it's for the people of Northern Ireland to decide for them what is the, 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 you know, what they want in, in that situation. The, the structure of the talks, which had been laid down before the Downing Street Declaration in an earlier series of talks, also to some extent preconditioned the outcome of it. At the end of the day, most people who went into those talks had a fairly good idea what were the parameters of the outcome. Now, the details are hugely significant. Very much and so, and uh, most, most of the, the, the problems in terms of the, the getting a successful outcome of the talks did hinge on points of detail, not the general basic thrust of what I've mentioned here so far. Although, do please bear in mind uh, that when we reached the outcome of those talks on the afternoon of Good Friday in 1998, uh, people keep talking about signing up to an agreement. Nobody actually signed up to the agreement because our process involved a vote. And there was a vote cast in the chamber, and there were rules as to determining whether there was sufficient consensus, so the voting was significant. And all the parties, bar one, voted in favour of the agreement. The party that didn't vote for the agreement was Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin abstained. And most of the problems we had post the agreement in terms of implementation were actually a struggle to get Sinn Féin to accept 
the agreement and to accept the obligations resting on it and on the Republican movement in the agreement. Now, I don't intend to track through all the detail of that. We have told I was only had 20 minutes, and that's scarcely enough to even scratch the surface on that subject. But the, we had considerable difficulties post-agreement in getting the Republicans to actually accept the requirement of being committed to exclusively peaceful and democratic means, which involved also getting rid of all the criminality that was associated with the Republican movement. And it wasn't really until, you know, around about 2005, 2007, uh, that the Republican movement actually got to the point that was, in a sense, set out in the agreement of 1998. Now, uh, if you want to study, look for some lessons from Northern Ireland or some guidance from Northern Ireland, going through the detail of that is actually useful. Uh, you learn more from uh, you know, failures than you do from successes, and there was an element of failure in terms of the handling of the process from 2000, well, say 1999 stroke 2000 through to 06, 07, uh, and looking at why the process ran into difficulties and why it took a slightly different course is where I think a lot of useful guidance can begin. Uh, now, I'm not going to summarise what I think went wrong on that, that occasion because that's going to get A, too detailed, and B, uh, might tend to uh, fracture slightly the very good relationship that currently exists amongst the panellists. And so I don't, <laughs> I don't want to, to get too much into that. But the result of the, the day when we got to you know, 07, 08, uh, the Republicans had finally committed themselves to uh, a purely peaceful path. They'd got rid of their weapons, insofar as one can tell, they'd got rid of their weapons, and they were moving decisively towards accepting uh, the legal system and the police, uh, which they, they have done. Uh, and we now have a situation where we've got local institutions in operation in Northern Ireland, uh, and they're, well... I was going to say that they're working successfully. I'd think, drop out the last word, they are working. Not terribly successfully, not terribly efficiently. Uh, but that's an awful lot better than what went before. Uh, and most people look forward to the future in Northern Ireland with confidence. There are still what they call dissident Republicans. There's still wrinkles in the situation. There will be for some time. Uh, the Republican ideology, uh, which most of the mainstream Republicans have now ditched, is still believed in by the, the handful of people who are referred to as dissident Republicans uh, and who say to Adams and McGuinness, well, we're only doing what you did uh, 20, 30 years ago, and the fact that Adams and McGuinness can't turn around to or won't turn around to them and say, yes, but we now realise that what we did was wrong uh, is, is perhaps a, a, you know, a limiting factor on that, but nobody thinks that the process is going to be undermined as a result of it. Now, what the lessons are from what I've said, I, I don't know because I don't feel one should be t drawing lessons in that crude sense. Uh, whether there's been any enlightenment in terms of what I've said, I'm not sure either. But I do emphasise, and I want just to conclude on this, as I said earlier, the process we were in was not just a free-for-all. It was not just a matter of anybody doing what they wanted at the time. There was a structure, and the structure was crucial to the outcome. And it, that structure didn't come from nowhere. It came, I think, from governments reflecting on the mistakes that were made earlier and, and consequently laying down a, a, a clearer structure. And what that's the appropriate structure would be for other talks processes or something you have to con consider in the light of the circumstances there. But I think that without a clear structure and without clear objectives being spelled out in a way that uh, and a defensible objectives, the right to it, and since the, the right objective has been clearly set out for people then, you know. But the other thing, oh, there is perhaps one lesson, 
and, and it is this, actually. Again, it's reflecting on the failure of the earlier attempts in the Sunningdale Agreement and the Anglo-Irish Agreement and all the rest of it compared to success later. And bear in mind that 25 years spans the gap between the first Sunningdale Agreement and the Belfast Agreement. Uh, when you got to Sunningdale Agreement, the problem with it was, a, and I won't go into there's problems about the detail of that, but leaving that to one side, the underlying problem was an, in 1973, probably most a very significant number of those involved in the, uh, on the nationalist side and certainly a sig those involved on the unionist side still thought in terms of a victory over the other. They weren't thinking in terms of a compromise. When we got to 1998, most people were prepared to accept a compromise. And in the end, even the IRA accepted the compromise. That's the, the, the one point I would underline. If you have a situation where people are still trying to achieve outright victory, and if the person seeking outright victory have the capacity then, or sufficient number or, or power to derail the process, then you're not going to get anywhere. You're only going to get somewhere where people uh, are prepared to accept the existence of the other and to uh, embrace, no matter how reluctantly, the idea of compromise. We, we will, of course, move into questions and answers, and David will pick up some of those points and some of yours. Um, Martin, Martin Manza. Martin, please. Thank you. Uh, great pleasure to be in the LSE uh, for the first time, and indeed just to sample your local bookshop briefly but, uh, during the conference period. Um, I agree with what uh, David has to say about uh, lessons between one situation uh, and the other, but a successful peace process is a good example and an inspiration uh, to other attempts to resolve conflicts uh, in their own way in other parts uh, uh, of the world, and certainly, uh, for example, um, the the Basque country uh, parties in the Basque country were. Uh, inspired uh, by the um, uh, Northern Ireland uh, uh, peace process. And I suppose there hasn't been a lot of good news coming out of Ireland uh, for the last couple of years, but um, the completion of a full assembly term, um, elections which look as if they will lead uh, to another full assembly term, and the first visit last week in a hundred years uh, to what is now the Republic by a British monarch, uh, they do represent a consolidation of what has been achieved by the peace process. And a lot of people expressed relief that we um, had the economists off the airwaves and uh, uh, the historians <laughs> the historians uh, came back at least and we had unremitting uh, apart from unfortunately the death of Garrett Fitzgerald unremitting good news last week as opposed to bad ones um, I'm delighted to share this platform both with um, uh, David Trimble um, and uh, Jonathan Powell 
Um, I think David Trimble um, displayed uh, tremendous uh, uh, courage, as did uh, did um, uh, John Hume, but um, in making uh, the agreement possible. And I would like to say that, with the benefit of hindsight, in other words, where we are today, um, he did deserve his share in the uh, Nobel uh, Peace Prize. And I'm equally delighted to share a platform with Jonathan Powell, who was absolutely um, critical. Um, he went to all sorts of places that his uh, predecessors uh, wouldn't have gone, um, and he did an awful lot of the spade work uh, for uh, uh, Tony Blair, and he's written, he's written a book about it. Um, I would make the point that counterterrorism and conflict resolution while clearly related, are not the same thing. Uh, terrorism was a word used sparingly, if at all, by many Irish governments over the quarter of a century of conflict, um, not because um, it implied a strong rejection of the IRA, that was there, but it could have signalled a narrow view of the solutions, more anti-terrorism laws, security force personnel, more ruthless tactics up to and beyond the rule of law. And while clearly uh, security measures um, and a viable security policy is necessary to prevent the spread of conflict, um, it can also help prolong it uh, by creating new landmark causes such as Bloody Sunday, the hunger strikes, shoot to kill, collusion, the legacy of all of which has been difficult to clear up even today. And I mean, to, in fairness, I haven't seen the news today about uh, the um, uh, Rosemary Nelson inquiry outcome, but the Bloody Sunday inquiry uh, at vast cost and over many years did finally achieve its objective to the satisfaction of most reasonable people. And I suppose one of the problems in Northern Ireland, and it is a problem, uh, for example, in the Middle East as well, is um, how do you uh, check a revolutionary minority inside an ethno-religious group without alienating the moderate majority within that group and without creating public sympathy uh, for extremists? And uh, that's a quotation from History Ireland about the Fenian invasion of Canada in the 1860s. But it, 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 it applies uh, 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 today. Um, and I suppose the whole purpose of the peace process was to shift from trying to inflict defeat on a section of the population to be isolated, to trying to find a new and far-reaching accommodation for the many legitimate interests. For, for a long time, for about 20 years, um, uh, the model was try and bring together uh, into the centre uh, the constitutional, uh, more moderate parties, reach an agreement, and then use that agreement uh, to justify uh, extremely tough security measures to deal with anyone who still carries on violence after that. Now, that, 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 that model did not um, uh, uh, produce uh, results. And in the uh, late 80s, we started to explore going about it the other way, which was to um, uh, try and create an inclusive uh, uh, process uh, by uh, reaching out, first of all, by very tentative um, uh, uh, discussions um, 
to, to see is there, was there a way that one could build political ideological bridges uh, which would enable them to embrace um, a, a uh, purely political course um, as opposed to a combined um, uh, political uh, and uh, paramilitary one. Um, and uh, the, the Anglo-Irish agreement um, uh, was, if you like, the last of uh, the the ones that were was ex was excluding not excluded unionists, but it also um, uh, excluded um, uh, um, Sinn Fein, and uh, but the. Fear, real fear of Dr. Fitzgerald, who died yesterday and who was one of our great political figures, was uh, that it was important at all costs uh, to prevent um, Sinn Féin winning nationalist uh, electoral majority electoral uh, uh, support that might enable it to legitimate armed struggle. And I suppose that would be uh, the justification um, uh, for uh, the hurt that that went against his instincts um, um, uh, that was inflicted inflicted on the on the unionist um, uh, community now um, I wouldn't certainly take uh, this is a matter that's been much debated over the past few years whether it's always good to talk um, and always good uh, talk talk tests. I think there are some dangers for a long time it was orthodoxy in in Ireland uh, that you shouldn't do this. It was a stronger orthodoxy actually than it was uh, uh, in, 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 in Britain. Uh, and certainly if you're not careful about the timing you will give people the impression that they're winning um, um, and that the, this will in fact uh, redouble, uh, redouble your, 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 your problems. So the problem is to identify uh, when such dialogue might genuinely be the start of a search for a way out um, and for a credible um, uh, political alternative. And I suppose there were kind of three strands um, to dialogue. Um, there was an IRA um, uh, British government dialogue that wasn't known about until uh, late 93. Um, there was also uh, efforts over the 20, 30 years, sort of mediators, disinterested parties, you have that in many conflicts. Um, uh, but it, what was also important was uh, dialogue with the other elements of uh, the much wider nationalist uh, community, um, uh, North and South. One of the advantages in the Northern Ireland situation, which is lacking in, say, the Basque conflict, um, Sri Lanka and indeed Palestine, is that the British government was always willing from the 1920s to accept the legitimacy of a united Ireland uh, if brought about by uh, a agreement uh, and consent, um, not imposed against um, uh, uh, the will uh, of a unionist majority. Um, whereas I think in some of those other situations the constitutional aim uh, is impossible. And creative use was made of the um, concept of uh, self-determination, uh, which obviously in a part, long partition country has to be exercised um, uh, concurrently. Um, I don't really have uh, time to go into um, 
some of the problems uh, and difficulties. But basically, there were three stages of the process. Um, the first stage was to try and bring violence to an end, uh, which would then enable negotiation to take place. And the, the, the second phase, if you like, was the negotiation of an agreement. And the third phase, which took at least 10 or 11 years, was actually implementing the agreement. Now, very often, if you look at peace processes in other parts of the world, uh, you've difficulty getting violence stopped. If you get violence stopped, no negotiation takes place, so uh, then it's apt to resume. Or alternatively, uh, you, you stop the violence, you have the uh, agreement negotiated, but it proves impossible to implement the agreement. Uh, there was nothing inevitable about any of this, but we did manage um, uh, with, with, with some considerable setbacks along the way, we did manage to negotiate um, uh, all those um, uh, three hurdles. There is, of course, uh, a problem of um, uh, dissidents. Uh, the question is, do small groups of dissidents do uh, they merit the same t type of treatment as you do to what one might call a more uh, mainstream paramilitary um, organization? Um, I'm not certain, frankly, that there is a lot of point uh, in, um, in talking about that. To conclude, um, uh, democratic uh, conflict resolution underpinned by a firm but not excessive security policy is by far the most effective way of dealing with a terrorist uh, problem. And uh, is, is, is if you can mobilize uh, the community, I mean, for example, when you had very recently uh, the shooting dead of Constable Ronan Kerr, the entire community, including some very strong nationalist organizations, made clear uh, their disgust uh, with this. And that has also proved very effective in, uh, uh, in the Basque country, uh, where hopefully um, uh, terrorism there is, 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 is coming uh, uh, to an end. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Martin. Uh, I now move on to Jonathan Powell. Jonathan. Thank you. Um, I too will be will be extremely brief. L let me start by saying what we all agree, which is that uh, Northern Ireland is sui generis. The, the conflict was sui generis. The solution was sui generis. Uh, there is no Northern Ireland model to be exported anywhere else. However, um, it does seem to me that there is something to be learned from the successes and failures we had in Northern Ireland, and it is worth people uh, involved in conflicts elsewhere looking at Northern Ireland to see what they can learn from those successes and those failures. If nothing else, it enables them to make their own mistakes as opposed to repeating ours. I'm going to just rattle through 10, uh, very quickly, 10 uh, lessons that I think Northern Ireland, uh, you can draw from Northern Ireland, which may or may not apply to some other conflicts, and I will sp be specific about which conflicts I think they might apply to. Starting with, with counterinsurgency, the American military have just re done their uh, handbook on, on counterinsurgency. Uh, they've adapted it from a straight military approach to a, to a wider approach. Uh, I personally think it actually needs to go, go wider even than it, than it does. Um, Hugh Ward, who uh, was the chief constable in Northern Ireland and was participating with us today, uh, said about uh, three or four years ago, 
um, that there is no example in the world of a terrorist conflict being policed out, that if there is in the end a political issue, you'll have to find a political solution to it. And I think that does really should, um, uh, people who are drawing up counterinsurgency strategies need to dwell on that. There seem to me to be three elements that we had in Northern Ireland and three elements that would work elsewhere. The first is clearly the security pressure down. You need to have security pressure down. If not, the insurgents you're dealing with will not give up. They will not go away. Unless their life is uncomfortable, they will carry on until they can win. But equally, unless you address the, what Mao called the water they swim in, the, the um, grievances that they have that make up their cause, uh, in the case of Northern Ireland it was housing, equality in housing, equality in employment and so on, unless you address those causes you won't find a way of um, uh, removing the support from the community for that insurgent group. And lastly and most importantly, you need to offer a political way out. In other words, if you simply apply pressure, you will simply uh, consolidate the group you're trying to fight. You won't actually end that group unless you think you can kill each and every member of it. If you just give it a political way out, they won't take that political way out because they're perfectly comfortable doing what they're doing. So you have to have the pressure down and a political way out. That's certainly what we had in Northern Ireland in the end. And I think, for example, in Afghanistan, if you think about it, that's likely to be the only way out in Afghanistan. You have to maintain security pressure. You have to address the water they swim in by dealing with the grievances. But you also need to offer a political way out, and that means talking to the Taliban, at least in my view. The second lesson I would uh, uh, try and draw is that we have always in the past said that we will never talk with terrorists. We've always said that we would um, uh, not negotiate with evil, in the words of President George W. Bush, that we would defeat it. And yet, if you look at our history, we said that about uh, Menachem Begin and Irgun in, in Israel, or Palestine, as it was then. Uh, we said the same about Kenyatta and the Mau Mau. And we said the same about uh, Bishop, Archbishop Macarius and Yoka. And yet, in all three cases, not only did we deal with them, we treated them as statesmen uh, later on. More recently, we've done the same with the PLO and the IRA. So I think there's no reason to assume that we won't be doing exactly the same with Hamas with the Taliban and al-Qaeda, because we see them as terrorists now, does not mean to say we will not necessarily be talking to them or dealing with them uh, at a later date. Uh, my third um, lesson is that, um, as David says, it's absolutely right to distinguish between establishing a channel and negotiating. The British government had a secret channel to the IRA from 1973 right through to 1993. It was only occasionally used, but it was there and open and usable when they wanted to, for example, in the hunger strike in 1980 or in the ceasefire in 1974. Um, that is different from actually uh, negotiating. And it seems to me that what Northern Ireland suggests to me is there are some conditions that need to be there, some necessary conditions if you're going to be successful at negotiating. And perhaps the most important of those is that both sides accept that they can't win militarily. Uh, in the case of Northern Ireland, in about early to mid-1980s, the British Army uh, realised that while they could contain the IRA indefinitely, they could keep security at an acceptable level indefinitely, they were not going to be able to wipe it out to make it go away altogether by military means. Uh, the IRA came to a conclusion somewhat later, I'm not clear exactly when, and we were discussing that today, late 80s, early, very early 90s. It was a generational change in part. Um, Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, who joined the movement quite young, were sort of 30s, 40s by then, they could see their young people, their cousins, nephews, nieces, and so on, being arrested, getting shot. And the question arises, did they think they could win militarily? Could they drive the Brits out militarily? They realised they couldn't do that. They would never be defeated. They'd never be wiped out by the British, but they weren't going to win militarily. And they started reaching out, looking for a political solution. So it seems to me that is a, a precondition for successful negotiations. And when it doesn't happen, as in, for example, Sri Lanka, 
where after the ceasefire, both sides thought they could win militarily, the Tamil Tigers and the uh, under Prabhakar and the Sri Lankan government. Both sides went back to war because they thought they could win. It wasn't sufficient consensus to actually get a proper negotiation going. A further condition, it seems to me, is the need to have no uh, sanctuary, to have no place that the terrorists can easily uh, flee to. In Northern Ireland, one of the conditions of success was security cooperation with the government of the Republic of Ireland, being able to ensure the IRA could not just cross the border and come back again and, and fight. But you see exactly the same thing, for example, in Spain. Uh, the Spanish government and the security forces had their success with ETA when they could no longer flee the border to France with impunity. When the French police started cooperating uh, really properly, which has really been since President Sarkozy came into office, uh, that's when they've had their, their biggest military success. The same is true with the FARC in Colombia. It's when Venezuela cooperates and they don't have safe sanctuary that you can make progress. I gave them further than that, of course, in the case of Northern Ireland. It's because we were able to work so closely with the Irish government. And it did really enter a new plane after 1997 with Bertie Ahern and Tony Blair. There had been cooperation before, but really strong cooperation for the 10 years they were both in government thereafter made a huge difference. I think there's a need for political leadership as a sufficient consensus if you're going to make progress in uh, these sort of negotiations. Um, and we were actually blessed in Northern Ireland with remarkable political leadership. I think David Trimble uh, not only deserved his Nobel Peace Prize, he deserves something more if there was a sort of extra star on top of it for, uh, for actually putting at risk his political party and his own political career to get to peace. Uh, I think it was a remarkable thing to do. I think Gerry Adams and Martin McGuinness deserve credit for leaving their, leading their movement somewhere it never had any intention of going in a crab-like way over a long period of time. It was real political leadership of a remarkable kind that put their lives at risk as well as everything else. I think Bertie Ahern and, uh, and Tony Blair likewise, if they hadn't had that um, drive, if they hadn't used the political momentum of their two election victories, uh, Tony Blair with a massive majority in 97, which he put to work to actually achieve peace in Northern Ireland, if he hadn't spent his political capital on that, if he hadn't had that political victory, it would have been very hard to, to get to a success. Uh, in his book, he accuses me of, of saying that he had a messiah complex. It was actually, it was Mo Molum said to me that he thought he was effing Jesus. Which was, but if he hadn't thought he was effing Jesus, he would have had some trouble getting to the, to the success that he had, because he believed there could be a solution in a way that previous prime ministers hadn't, and he believed he could get there. Um, there's a question, to, in my mind, whether without that political leadership you can get to successful uh, conflict re resolution negotiations elsewhere. If you look at the Middle East at the moment, the absence of political leadership on both sides of the, of the divide make it very hard to believe you'll... Um, you will actually succeed. There's an interesting additional question about whether it's easier to make peace between the extremes, whether it's better to be able to have the DUP in Sinn Féin so no one can outflank them, or better as we started in Northern Ireland to try and work with the moderate centre, with the SDLP and the UUP. Is it always going to be the extremes that lead you to peace, or is there a way of getting there from the centre? Um, the, the other another lesson that I conclude is that you do need to have a process. When I went back over the, the files, the government allowed me to go back over the number 10 files from 1997 to 2007 when I was writing my book. There was one thing above all else that jumped out of the pages at me, and that was the need to have a process. If you have a process, there's some cause for hope, there's some reason to think you might succeed. If there's no process, you have a vacuum, and that vacuum will be filled by, filled by violence. Shimon Peres, the, the President of Israel and the master of the one-liner, summed it up nicely in the case of the Middle East peace process. Uh, he, uh, his, his point was that everyone knows how the Middle East peace process will conclude. We know what the result will be, but there's no process in place. And he said, the good news is there's light at the end of the tunnel, and the bad news is there's no tunnel. 
and that's exactly the problem in most peace processes, and certainly it was true in Northern Ireland. If you can have that process, if you can hold on to it, what I call the bicycle theory, if you can keep that process moving forward, do not allow it to fall over. Absorb political pain if you have to. But whatever you do, hold on to that and never take no for an answer, then you can get to, you can get to a success. I think it's important to have a united group that you're negotiating with. Historically, the British government had tried to divide the Republican movement. Every time it had an opportunity, it would go for the split. Uh, Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness persuaded Tony Blair very early on, that first meeting in Downing Street in uh, December 1997, that it would be sensible to try and keep the whole IRA together, to carry as many with them as they could into peace. Uh, and I, and although it took a long time, it was very slow, it was very painful to do so, I think that was the right decision. We wanted to try and avoid making peace many times and just make peace once. Again, I think this has lessons for the Middle East. If you look at uh, Fatah and Hamas, uh, people are saying that the combination of Fatah and Hamas will actually be a, a, a difficulty for peace. But if I was an Israeli negotiator, I would want to ensure that you didn't have to make peace twice, make one peace with Fatah and then wait and have to make peace with Hamas later on. It's far more sensible to see some way of making peace with them both at the same time. Um, I think that uh, sometimes people make a mistake in thinking that uh, peace can be an event rather than a process. When you get a breakthrough agreement, people suddenly say that's fantastic and collapse back into uh, relaxation, give up having been exhausted in the process of getting to the breakthrough agreement. Uh, certainly in the case of Oslo, the Oslo Accords in, in the Middle East, it was extraordinary how those agreements came out, it was extraordinary the reaction to them in terms of enthusiasm and extraordinary how no one made any effort to implement it or to sell it to either side and how the hope dissolved and disappeared. Uh, if we'd done the same thing with the Good Friday Agreement, it took us nine years after the conclusion of the Good Friday Agreement to actually get it implemented, get it in place and get what I hope is a lasting peace there. So you do need to have that determination after you've had the um, breakthrough agreement to actually redouble your efforts. That's when the real work starts. My last lesson is I think that um, uh, what Northern Ireland shows me is that there is no problem in the world. There is no conflict that is actually insoluble. People for a long time thought the Northern Ireland peace was never going to happen. Uh, there was never any hope. Pre Prime Ministers from Churchill to Thatcher believed there was no solution um, uh, that could be achieved. Uh, actually, it was. If you apply enough political leadership, if you apply enough patience, if the conditions are right, you can make your breakthrough. If you have the opportunity, there's a cycle of blood that you sometimes have to go through before you get that window of opportunity. But when you get that, if you seize it, you can make a breakthrough. You can uh, get to agreement. It doesn't say you mean to say you will. It doesn't mean to say it's inevitable. Far from it. But if you have those factors, you at least have a chance. And in many ways, what happened in Northern Ireland was to build on the failures that had gone before, as David was saying. We had Sunningdale, we had the Anglo-Irish Agreement, we had the Downing Street Declaration. None of those succeeded. But if they hadn't happened before, it would have been very hard to to get to a solution. It was because we had all of those and built on them, learnt the lessons from them that we did get there in the end. So I think there are some lessons that at least are debatable and worth discussing. Thank you. Uh, last but by no means least, uh, Professor Richard English. Richard. Thanks very much, Mick. Uh, un unlike my fellow panellists, I played absolutely no part at all in bringing peace to Northern Ireland. Um, and it it's a great pleasure to get a chance to salute in public the work that Jonathan and David and Martin so powerfully did. It's easy to forget what an extraordinary achievement and what an unlikely-looking achievement that was. Uh, if you compare, for example, 
levels of violence in 1972 in Northern Ireland when 497 people were killed in that year alone and look forward to the year 2012 when despite the efforts of dissident Republicans the level of violence will be negligible compared to that. It's an extraordinary and it wasn't an inevitable achievement and it wasn't an easy one and the work of people like my three fellow panellists played a tremendous part in bringing us to where we are and I think it should be saluted. Um, I, I agree with what's been said about there not being lessons which you can apply in the sense that I don't think you can look at what happened in Northern Ireland and say because this happened in Northern Ireland therefore we should think about that's that being the way it's going to happen in relation to other conflicts around the world. I do think that it's possible to say that if you look at Northern Ireland and synoptically look at other conflicts and other histories of terrorist violence and political violence around the world, there might be some family resemblances between those different conflicts, which mean that you can humbly offer a reading of what historically suggests it makes sense to do, and more importantly, perhaps it makes sense not to do when you face a terrorist crisis. Um, a couple of years ago, I published a, a book trying to set out those family resemblances called Terrorism, How to Respond. Um, uh, an attractively priced book, I should say. Uh, and I, the, the, the easiest thing for me to do would be to rattle through the seven points uh, from that book and give what Samuel Beckett would have referred to as an expurgated, accelerated, improved and reduced version of the book. But if I can be absolutely candid, I'm so fed up giving lectures about that book that what I'm going to do is I've come up with four other points which I'm going to mention. And um, if you want to know, know what I think about the book, then terrorism, uh, terrorism, how to respond. What I'm going to do is try and set out four things about the Northern Irish experience of dealing with terrorism and moving from something like war to something like peace, which I think run counter to some of the assumptions that still prevail more broadly in relation to Northern Ireland, and I want to challenge them. The first is, I find this talking sometimes to people who visit from other parts of the world and come to Northern Ireland and discuss it. There's an assumption that perhaps what happened in Northern Ireland was a process of reconciliation and therefore the ending of political violence. Absolutely nothing to do with that at all. Okay. The two political parties which effectively run Northern Ireland for the most part now, the Democratic Unionist Party and Sinn Féin, are drawn entirely from politically divided communities. My favourite statistic from the Northern Ireland Life and Times survey, uh, which I monitor closely each year, is when you break down who votes for the DUP, the party of Ian Paisley as was, uh, and who votes for the Sinn Féin in terms of you know, social class and gender and religion. If you break it down in terms of religion, Ian Paisley's old party, the DUP, has more Catholic support than Sinn Féin has Protestant support. And the respective statistics are 1% and naught. Okay, it's 1-0 to the DUP. There was a year when it became 2-1 to Sinn Féin, but it's back now to 1-0 to the DUP. And that underlines the point, as does far more trivially the fact when I joined Queen's University in 1989, and then I left it in 2011, 1989 was a year of you know, considerable and awful political violence, 2011 much more peaceful. Queen's was actually a much more sectarian place in 2011 than it was in 1989. Not, I think, because I'd been there for 21 years, but, I think, but undoubtedly, and the reason for that is straightforward, which is in 1989 to express sectarian views was something which when you switched the news on at lunchtime you'd hear that those sectarian views had consequences to them in the possibility that someone was being murdered twice a week whereas now you can have a kind of sectarianism cost free if you like because it doesn't have those effects this is a profoundly sectarian society and it remains such and therefore the endings of violence have much more to do with the points which Martin and David and Jonathan have outlined very eloquently than it has to do with reconciliation. A second point which I think sometimes people think is that, is that everyone remembers too much about the past in Northern Ireland in other words that it's obsessed with memory. I would argue that it's a place 
where virtually, virtually nothing is remembered accurately in terms of what happened during the Northern Ireland conflict. I used to find, for example, that students, particularly Republican students, would talk about the indelible imprint that the 10 hunger strikers who died tragically in 1981 in prison have had on the Republican community. And in my more mischievous moments, I said, well, name them then. I was always the only person in the room who could name all 10. Okay. If you go from a much more, for, to an even more significant thing, you said, well, during the prison protest of 1976 to 1981, how many people can you name of the 472 people that the IRA killed in that period? Or the 111 people whom the UVF killed in that period? And you're down then to very small numbers. Understandably, people tend to forget some of the awfulness of what happened in Northern Ireland. Ex-paramilitaries in Northern Ireland at, at, at conferences such as the one we've been having today, if there had been people present, tend to refer to themselves, perhaps understandably, as ex-combatants. What you've actually never had in Northern Ireland was combat. The vast majority of people who were killed in the Northern Ireland conflict were killed when they were defenceless. And I think the nastiness and the awfulness and the viciousness of it is something which emotionally it's important to try and forget, but politically it's absolutely essential to try and remember because there's a sanitizing process there's the sort of, um, unlike jihadists, the IRA or a quite decent bunch because they used to ring you first and tell you where it was kind of thing, or uh, you know the, 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 the level of violence, which has been a point that I've heard put you know, a number of times you know, actually it didn't seem like that when people went into a bar and put a bomb there and didn't phone a warning and it went off in Guildford it didn't seem like that when loyalists killed people whom they were roaming around North Belfast looking for in a Celtic shirt. A third thing which I'd want to challenge. As you can tell, having left Queens, I'm now slightly more off-message in terms of some of the things I say about it. But a third thing is, <clears throat> a, a third thing is that, that, that there's a myth that prevails that Northern Ireland testifies to the fact that large numbers of people support political violence and that what you get is the domination of the extremes, which understandably is something which is reinforced when you look at the fact that you've had a deal which has involved Sinn Féin, formerly the party of the Provisional IRA, and the Democratic Unionist Party, the more aggressively unionist of the, the two big political parties. However, it's important to remember that during most of the Northern Ireland Troubles, the majority of people in both communities emphatically did not support those political parties which represented political violence. It's only after the IRA gave up killing people that Sinn Féin became the dominant party in the North. And that is an important point, not nearly shouted out loudly enough when we look at other conflicts around the world, because the normality and rationality and decent morality of most people in conflict situations is a huge, huge resource. When you talk to people who've been involved in countering terrorism as police or as people in the security service, they say there's a spike in information you get about these groups after an egregious atrocity. Why? Because people think, however much I might sympathize with the politics of what these people have done, I just can't stand the killing. And therefore you'll give information. And that resource is absolutely vital. And it's often lost. It's partly lost because, the, 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 for example, on the Nationalist Party, the political party which long opposed violence, which during the IRA's war against the British state repeatedly trounced Sinn Féin elections for the most part, the SDLP, has become politically marginalised in the peace. But it's important to remember the hostility that they had to the violence. Okay? Fourth thing is the big question about does terrorism work? And I think Jonathan touched on this. And again, there's a, there's a notion I used to find with students in Queens when you raised the question of does terrorism work, the standard answer was yes, look at Martin McGuinness. To which your, your, your reaction was well, yes, in some ways people can have a good war and you can get all sorts of secondary benefits. In terms of the central goals of terrorist organizations, none of the terrorist organizations in the Northern Ireland conflict ended the Northern Ireland conflict on the basis of having got what they were killing people for. Whatever Martin McGuinness 
in his IRA days was aiming at. It wasn't to be the Deputy First Minister in Northern Ireland flying at the, f flying at the front of the plane rather than the back of the plane, though those are, of course, secondary advantages. Okay. Whatever it was that the UDA was murdering people for, it wasn't so as Sinn Féin would become the Deputy Prime Minister of Northern Ireland. Okay. And I think there is a humbling lesson for all of us in looking at conflicts. No one comes out of the Northern Ireland conflict looking good. No one. Okay, it's an ugly, ugly specimen. That's an important point to remember when we look at these conflicts. But one of the points about it is that I think in, 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 a, in addition to the proper honest respect that states have had in terms of Northern Ireland, that citizens and individuals have had, it's also important to recognize, along with the fact that there hasn't been reconciliation, that we tend still to forget and airbrush out some of the nastiness of what people actually did within very short times into the past, that most people didn't support violence. It's also the fact that terrorism, in terms of the achievement of its central goals, is actually not a particularly effective pastime. Audrey Cronin wrote a wonderful book recently, How Terrorism Ends, in which she's analyzed over 400 terrorist groups and looked at the degree to which they end their campaign on the basis of achieving their central goals. It's a very small percentage, and I think that's a crucial lesson as we try and not learn lessons from Northern Ireland, but think about responding to terrorism and political violence and associated conflicts while looking at this transformed episode of political violence in Northern Ireland, which now, thanks partly to the efforts of people like my fellow panellists, has largely and thankfully come to an end. Thanks very much. Uh, yeah, I got the. Ha I'm, I'm just looking for my mic. Where's the, uh, one mic, two mics, one up there. Okay, let's. Uh, the gentleman over here uh, on the side. I'll take a. I'll take the gentleman here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. 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 Down here. Just follow my finger. Chat with the red. Sorry. Yeah. Please. Um, I'm a the Could you speak up, please? Sorry. Sorry, my name is uh, Rory Gerardy, and I'm a postgrad student here in the LSE. I'm, I'm doing research uh, on my dissertation on Northern Ireland. I think one of the interesting things that I've listened to uh, on all the panelists here tonight uh, is that we talk about republicanism as terrorism and how wrong that was, and I would agree with that, but do you not think that all terrorism was wrong, and that would include the, the actions of loyalist paramilitaries, and when we talk about the terrorist actions that happened in Northern Ireland, should we not talk about it in community-neutral language and say that all terrorism was wrong, and avoid, like, avoid pointing all of our uh, anger and all of our, our thoughts on one particular community, because I, I would believe that all, all of terrorist action was wrong that occurred in Northern Ireland. Okay, I'll, t I'll take a couple more. The lady over here in... Watch, Hi. watch the microphones, they seem to make a kind of backlash. Or something. Hi, my name is Fiona McMahon, originally from Northern Ireland. Um, and I would like to know, um, given the state of affairs in Northern Ireland now, and since the peace and inverted commas process, um, do you not think that it is the case that terrorism actually works? Because both of the parties, the DUP and the Sinn Féin party, are and were related to terrorist organisations. Okay, Fiona. Uh, I think we'll, 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 that's enough to start off with, I think. Uh, uh, David, why don't you 
kick off. I mean, and response to any of the points that you want to respond to. So you were the most economic of all the speakers. Yeah. Uh, gentleman here first. <clears throat> There's no doubt but that the recourse to violence made things worse. I mean, you were talking about, uh, in some, some of the other panels were talking about, in some respect, Northern Ireland being more sectarian now than it was in the 1960s. I think uh, intercommunal feelings are stronger now than they were in the 1960s. And I've no doubt that the recourse to violence made things more difficult, made things worse. Yes, both the Sinn Féin and the DUP uh, have, you know, to, you know, Sinn Féin obviously very much involved in violence. Uh, Paisley with the DUP was always flirting with it round the edges uh, and uh, then usually drawing back as soon as it, became, it started to turn serious or, or might have had some political consequences for him. Uh, one of the questions I like to put about, you know, with, with regard to DUP and Paisley is ask yourself, would there have been the troubles if Paisley had not been there? Answer probably not. So there, there's, there's a considerable, uh, you know, uh, burden that they carry with them there. Uh, the assembly's not an exciting place, you know. The the, the fact that most people uh, don't vote for it. The fact that I'm heartily glad to be out of it. Uh, the fact that in 1998, when we were setting it up, I did my best to try and persuade John Taylor to go and become first minister, so I could stay in, in Westminster, where things were really interesting instead of having to deal with all these parish pump issues, which really, oh, you know, so I understand that. And it's also the fact that because uh, Sinn Féin and DUP are so different in their positions, they find it so difficult to agree on matters, uh, other than to adopt a populist line and complain about London, uh, you know, all the time, which isn't really, you know, at some point they're going to have to try and actually deal, you know, to, to, to try and deal with some of the problems we have in Northern Ireland. If only it's the question of, of, of getting a decent water system that doesn't break down the way it did at the last year. So anyway, there's my reflections on this. Richard, why don't you have a go there? Hit the microphone there. The, the, the question about different kinds of terrorism, I absolutely agree with you. And I did try, I mean, I did refer to the UDA and the UVF. I, I, I tend not to single out just one group. I mean... Actually, the IRA killed far more people than anyone else did in the conflict, which is one reason people talk about them. The other is because their political party, unlike other paramilitary-related political parties, have gone into government. It has a different kind of political implication. But I totally agree with you. I mean, I think political murder is political murder and should be condemned, and I absolutely would not want to single out one side. The point about apathy, um, in some ways, apathy is damaging. I think, for example, some political parties uh, who, who've had a rather benign effect on Northern Irish politics don't always get the vote out in huge numbers, and that's a shame. Having said that political apathy in one sense is a, it's, it's a my friend is saying it's good it's a, it's, a, it's a sign that things have gone to a point where they're less urgent, dreadful, awful and therefore you can kind of ignore them and live with them in other words politics has become to some degree more boring and that's a good thing I, I always thought when I moved to Northern Ireland in, in 1989 if politics became uh, only local and boring it would be a much better thing than it simultaneously being local and international because of its awful violence so I think apathy isn't the worst thing in that respect I, mean, I think about the, the point Fiona made about terrorism working I mean yes uh, Sinn Féin certainly into a, in, to a degree as David suggests the DUP in a more flirtatious rather than full on way were involved in, in militant politics having said that the kind of goals they were espousing insofar as they were were not the goals that they've now ended up with I mean I think my point there would be that what 
They've ended up absolutely. That's absolutely true. And that's, but but they've not ended up ruling in the kind of way that they're projecting. It's not that there's no benefit. It's not that there's no benefit. Well, I mean, I think it's, we have to look at the record. I mean, it's, it's it's clear that Martin McGuinness in 1972 or Jerry Adams in 1982 uh, were and their comrades in the movement were aiming for something very different from that which they've got. Now they still maintain that you can get it in the future, and that's what they want to do. I think that's unlikely. But I mean, I think I think what they've got is some. I'm not saying there's no effect of terrorism. I'm saying that the central goals are ones which I'm skeptical about being achieved in most cases. I, th I think one should say very you know, firmly sure. that Sinn Féin only started to get votes, serious votes when it gave, when it then distanced itself from violence. Mm -hmm. And they're in the, exec in the assembly and in the executive where they are because they have got the votes. Violence didn't get them into the assembly. Votes got them into the assembly. And votes have got them into the administration. Martin, do you want a quick one? Yeah. Uh, I mean, Republican politics, um, going back to the 1920s, was always more popular uh, than Republican violence. Um, now, in a lot of elections, bar voting is compulsory, as in Belgium, um, you, do, you can get uh, quite substantial... Uh, numbers of people uh, are staying at staying at home. This was the first election in Northern Ireland which didn't really revolve deeply about uh, constitutional issues. It was about uh, bread and uh, butter issues. But in some ways, if politics has become boring, well, it's a lot better than uh, the constant funerals of 20 years ago. Yeah, I hope you didn't take my view about apathy being good. I, when, I, when I went to Northern Ireland, I couldn't believe the turnout, well up to 70%. And in some parts of Ireland, Northern Ireland, they voted twice, just to show their great enthusiasm. So um, there we go. Gentleman up here and the gentleman here. Thank you. Um, my name is Asoko Obeisekara. I'm a comparative politics uh, master's student here at the LSE. Um, I want to ask a quick question um, of the panel about uh, the contribution of third parties in the peace process, principally between the Downing Street Declaration and uh, the Good Friday Agreement being signed. Um, and I speak specifically about the contribution of Senator George Mitchell. And um, as a Sri Lankan, uh, I've seen the failure of Norway as a third party. And so, I, uh, thank you. Question, yeah. Uh, Conor Gearty, LSC. A couple of questions, one for Jonathan Powell and one for uh, Lord Trimble. Jonathan, you went to a number of people you thought were central and uh, Nobel Prize star for David, but you didn't mention John Human. I just wondered whether that was just an accident, uh, and if it was an accident, whether now's the time to rectify it. Uh, Okay. And on Lord Trimble, very quickly, you've done some work recently, David, in Israel. Uh, people mightn't be fully familiar with what that work was inquiry, and whether you have any, and took the opportunity to give any advice to the Israeli government as to whether there are any lessons that might be brought to their attention with regard to what they call their terrorism problem. Okay. Uh, I'll take one. There's a lady here. I'll just take this lady's question. No, Come back and I'll go back now again, please. My name is uh, Maya Dragovska. I'm a former student at the LSE. I also come from Macedonia where we have a similar agreement called the Ohrid Framework Agreement and I've been following the two processes. But uh, my question is not related to that comparison. It's a question for Jonathan Powell. I'm interested um, whether the current British government is looking into the possibility of negotiations with uh, Islamist uh, terrorists here in the UK, whether you think we have a vacuum a lack of tunnel. Thanks. Thank you. We call that a Macedonian question. <laughs> an, open, an open and open-ended one. 
Uh, third partisan peace process. Why didn't you mention John here? David, Israel, Islamists, where do you want to start? Martin? Well, if the question is directed at me, I did mention John Hume. No, it's me. No, no, oh, sorry, you. Oh, sorry, sorry. He was the, he was the one. <laughs> Thank you. He's the, one who, he's the one who failed, not you, Martin. Oh, oh sorry. Okay. So, could I just, okay. while I have the floor, can I just say about yeah, the contribution of, contribution of third parties? I mean, I think there is a big distinction uh, between third parties who are essentially mediators, mediators without power. Um, George Mitchell represented President Clinton. He represented, if you like, the economic uh, weight of the United States as well as, the, poli as the, 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 the political weight. So I think that type of third party mediation, reasonably neutral, but uh, with a lot of power behind it, I thought that uh, that was uh, very effective. Uh, David? Well, George chaired the talks and uh, chaired the George talk, Mitchell. George Mitchell, and did so very fairly. Uh, and uh, in the whole couple of years that he was doing that, he only raised his voice once. But I will not reveal the identity of the person <laughs> who caused him to raise his voice. I can't imagine who. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but he, he was essentially operating as a, 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 a pure mediator in that situation. Uh, and there wasn't any. We never had the sense of there being any power behind. You had, you had a few calls from President Clinton, I think, didn't you? I had one call from President Clinton <laughs> on Good Friday, which uh, I, he, which I turned to, to my advantage. <laughs> I, I'll give you chapter no, first for that. But, 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 but Jerry Adams had a lot more calls from President Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember in uh, it was 1919, was I think, uh, Paddy's Day in uh, Washington. Uh, spending, oh, I suppose about an, an hour in Clinton's up first floor study mm. was just Clinton, <laughs> Jerry Adams, and myself, uh, in which Clinton did everything he could to try and persuade Jerry to move on a particular issue. Uh, and every argument he could think of uh, did it very eloquently. And I noticed that all he was doing was trying to persuade him. He wasn't actually exercising any leverage on him. And I think that, 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 that just amazed me. Uh, of course, we got nowhere. Mm. And, and Clinton's attempts to persuade Adams got nowhere, because Adams was in his hunkered down mode. You know, you'll be familiar with yes, that. Uh, and he was just letting what Clinton say float over him. No pressure was brought to bear. And yet Clinton did have means of bringing pressure to bear on him. And then you contrast that with the, uh, the Bush White House, which in, a, in a, a small way, but nonetheless did it, did actually bring pressure to bear on the Republican movement. And the pressure that the Bush White House brought to bear on the Republican movement bore more fruit than all Clinton's eloquence ever did. Jonathan. Uh, yep, uh, to fin defend myself, there were three people who I didn't, didn't refer to as I was trying to rush through this who uh, deserve credit for political leadership. One is John Hume, who took remarkable risks in the late 1980s and indeed sacrificed his political party in the, in the process. Um, and, and really does deserve enormous credit for, for what he did. I think John Major deserves enormous credit for making the effort on Northern Ireland peace process when he had absolutely no votes to gain from it. Um, uh, I didn't mention him. And actually, funny enough, Ian Paisley, since David's mentioned him. Ian Paisley may have caused the troubles, but he also helped them bring, to, bring them to an end. He told us that after he'd... Uh, that Coming quite close to death in 2004, he... Um, 
wanted to come back as Dr. Yes rather than Dr. No, having had a close encounter with his maker. And so he deserves credit too. In terms of the third parties, I think there are three different sorts of third parties. There's what you call a weak facilitator, which is a role that George Mitchell played in the, uh, in the peace process, where he couldn't really do anything other than take the lowest common denominator given to him. There's a strong facilitator, which is a role that the British and Irish governments essentially played between the parties in Northern Ireland when they said they had no selfish strategic or economic interest. They then tried to play the role of facilitator, but they could change things on the ground. They could change things in security terms or economic terms. That is the role the US plays in the Middle East as a strong facilitator. It can change things if it wants to, uh, if it chooses to use its muscle. I think you're a bit harsh on, uh, sorry, the third, third type, which is the guarantor, which we had with the uh, IMC, the International Monitoring Commission, Independent Monitoring Commission, and the IICD, the in International Independent Decommissioning Commission in Northern Ireland. These were international bodies that had a guaranteeing role, that, that acted as a referee, if you want, and had real power. I think you're a bit harsh on the Norwegians. It wasn't their fault that the Sri Lankan peace process collapsed. It was because Prabhakar was a lunatic. And, they, they, and the Sri Lankan government thought that it could win militarily. That's what which caused it, it which it has done for the moment. But there's a longer story to that one to run, I suspect. Um, in terms of Islamic terrorists in the UK, I, I, um, I do, making this distinction between talking and um, uh, and negotiating. I think talking is not a gift that you sort of give to someone or don't give to someone. In my view, I think it doesn't. That's not the way you should think about it. The person who refuses to talk is always the person in the wrong. I wouldn't try and negotiate, for example, with Al-Qaeda, but I do see the sense of talking to Al-Qaeda, having some channel to communicate, at least with the branches of Al-Qaeda in Somalia or in the Sahel or in, in Yemen, at least have some means of communicating with them. And the same I would say would be true of the dissident, IRA, dissident Republicans in Northern Ireland. There's no point in negotiating with them, but communicating with them makes sense. The same would apply if there was any sort of organized group of Islamic terrorists in the United Kingdom, but I don't see such a group, so I don't see even how you could talk to them. Can I just add a little footnote, thinking of the Islamists uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, when you've got a situation like this, uh, there's an intellectual battle, there's an ideological battle, and that has to be won by the government. Uh, otherwise, nothing else is going to flow from it. Uh, and I think with regard to Islamists uh, in Britain, uh, the previous government got its prevent strategy wrong. Uh, and thinking that the problem was purely violent extremists and that they would should stretch reach out to non-violent extremists. Uh, I don't think you should reach out to non-violent extremists without challenging the ideology. And that the, 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 at this present time, it's a matter of challenging that ideology. And I think that Cameron is trying to rein, uh, reinterpret and refocus the prevent strategy on that, mm. certainly judging by his, his, his recent speech. That's the direction he's going in. The question is whether the governmental machine will answer uh, to, to that rather than just keep on doing what it was doing before, which is its default mode. Okay, can, can, can I just, just, just emphasize that point? I think taking up the ideological challenge um, in any conflict situation is important. It's easy to say people are mindless terrorists, don't just ignore the arguments they're putting forward. That's, that's a, a very big mistake. And I mean, certainly, say, the dissidents who tried to create some activity this week I mean, the Brits out, intent to withdraw, occupied Ireland, uh, that ideology is totally obsolete and been made obsolete by the success of the Good Friday Agreement. I haven't answered Conor Geert. I was going to bring you back onto the Israel issue, yeah, because yeah. Conor mentioned that, yeah, if you could, David. Well, I'm, I'm not really uh, in a position to, to give them advice on 
uh, how they approach matters. In fact, actually, you, uh, you made reference to Shimon Peres' one-liners. Uh, I have a lovely one-liner from Shimon Peres. It goes back several years. It's the time when Ehud Olmert's government was negotiated with Mahmoud Abbas. And uh, Shimon came to a conference that I was at, and someone asked him, how are the talks going on? And, and Shimon answered, quite simple, and it would be true today still, uh, that he said that on all the practical issues, we are very close to agreement, but the emotional issues are getting heavier and more difficult. <laughs> okay, I've got a gentleman down here. Um, yeah, and then a lady behind, and I'm taking two people up there. Yeah, please. Thank you. Uh, John Newham. Um, my question is, uh, what advice would the panel give uh, with respect to the Middle East peace process? Last week, for example, President Obama gave a speech which was uh, not well received by, by uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and yet uh, Obama's reception at APAC yesterday was, shall we say, uh, more measured. Could we have some comments on that, please? Thank okay. you. There's a lady behind you, please. Yeah, I'm trying to get a rough... Yeah, please. Susan Doris, barrister, former law student at Queen's. Um, I'm just wondering whether you think, um, arising from Northern Ireland, that those taking part and holding firmly to the principles of non-violence have been adequately credited, and in terms of similar conflict resolutions or conflict situations, whether those people that firmly stand to non-violence will be credited? There's a lady here and lady back, please. Yeah. Um, with um, the UN 1973 resolution handed over to NATO to execute in Libya, how will such action help counter terrorism in the future? Given that in the case of Northern Ireland, it was a case of talks and negotiation that placed them where they are today. Okay, and then one at the back there. Yeah, uh, my name is Maite from Basque Country. Um, Sinn Féin um, were like direct advisors uh, for the ceasefire of ETA in 2006 and now we have permanent ceasefire of ETA. I would like to know until which extent do you think that ETA is following the path of IRA? Uh, do you get that Okay, thanks very much. That's quite a lot of good questions. Uh, Richard, why don't you... Well, uh, the question at the front here about people who were committedly non-violent, who of course were far more numerous and are far less famous, and the answer is no. They've not been credited enough with it, and I think that's one of the, 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 the casualties of, of a process like this. I think it's an explicable casualty, because I think when states, particularly the UK state within which most of the violence was happening, are looking at trying to say, can we stop people being murdered, can we stop bombs going off, there's an understandable practicality about that. But I think you can see it in electoral terms, in terms of the parties that have fared less well in the peace process. I think you can see it in terms of who gets invited to meet the Queen when she's in the Republic of Ireland. I think you can see who gets uh, to write memoirs that make some money. And I think you can get, see it in terms of the names that are famous. Your question about how that would be made different in other situations is a question to which I have no obvious answer. But I mean, I do think that the, the central lesson of it is that there, there is a danger. I mean, I've said I don't think terrorism works in terms of groups getting to to achieve what they're actually centrally wanting to get. I think one thing terrorist groups sometimes do get is a greater share of how it ends up afterwards and a greater sense that they represent the legitimate voice of communities, which actually through much of the conflict didn't really support what they were doing in terms of the violence at least that they were carrying out. So I think it's, it's a paradox there. On the ETA one, I'll be very brief on that. I, I actually think the differences between the ETA case and the IRA case are much stronger and more important than the similarities. And I don't think that 
there's been much of an echoing in the way that sometimes people think. I think what happens is because there are quite strong relationships between the two communities, if you like, I mean, ETA and the IRA and their respective political groups have been quite matey in, in various different ways. I've deliberately drawn analogies. There's been a tendency, therefore, to think that there'll be something mimetic happening in the Basque part of Spain. I, I think actually the differences are much more significant than the similarities. Um, yeah, thank you. A couple of the, the comment about uh, Obama um, and Middle East. Um, both initially with his uh, call for a complete cessation of settlements and then his comments more recently, uh, he was saying something which would have been very positive if, if it had been exp expressed slightly differently. Now, I am a slight disadvantage in this because I haven't been able to, and I have not studied, the precise context and the precise words he used. But the words as reported were not going to be positive in the situation. Uh, and indeed, what he said in his recent speech, which Netanyahu was taking vigorous exception to, the same thing could have been phrased slightly differently and everybody would be saying, great. So I think there's a slight problem there, uh, and I think he might be better if he was to listen to Dennis Ross, for example, more rather than write the speeches himself. Uh, on the lady here about the question of non-violence, do you remember with regard to the process in Northern Ireland that it was initially built on the moderate centre parties? The, the DUP didn't, you know, well, they, they, they participated in the talks until Sinn Féin came in and then they walked out uh, and didn't participate. Sinn Féin were in the process but the agreement was made over their heads and uh, with their vigorous objection to it. They, what happened afterwards where they, DUP and, and Sinn Féin, uh, displaced the Ulster Party and the SDLP, that wasn't inevitable and wasn't, in, I don't think, and I'm being kind to you, I don't think it was intended. But I think it was a consequence of, the, of mistakes that were made. Uh, some of those mistakes I see in terms of the mismanagement of the process. I think perhaps in, in a quiet moment of reflection, myself and the SDLP might also find some mistakes we made ourselves, but it's not my job to expound exactly. to that at the moment. <laughs> I, think, I think Jonathan wants to say something. No, not on, not on that, you know. The Middle East peace process. I, I, in my view, it's missing a P, which is it's not a process, and if it was a process, they'd have some chance of getting somewhere. If they're going to get into a process, they'd be better off to avoid preconditions, which is a lesson I think we learned from Northern Ireland, that preconditions can be very dangerous. Some preconditions, like a ceasefire, make absolute sense, others don't. And if you ask, if you set a precondition like ending settlements, or if you have a precondition like demanding Hamas recognise Israel at the beginning of the process rather than the end, you're not going to get a process going. So I think those are uh, what I would do, but there's no chance that they will do so. It may be that we're a period of cycle, as I say, where there are the preconditions simply aren't there for a successful peace negotiation, so you won't get anywhere. On the Basque question, I think, I, I'm not sure I would agree, Rich, I think there are some interesting parallels there. Most interestingly, yesterday, where Bildu, the party representing the Basque, uh, Basque uh, well, basically it's Batasuna by another name, got, came second. It beat the PSE and it beat the, um, uh, the, the, um, the PP into third and fourth places. Rather extraordinary result. So if the party gives up violence in the way that Batasuna effectively has done, then it can succeed in the way that Sinn Féin did in Northern Ireland, but not if it carries on with violence. So I hope it does follow the, the route of the IRA. I didn't understand the Libyan question, I'm afraid. So I don't. Oh, there's, there's quite a lot, but come back. Uh, there's a lady here with the mic. Who else has got the microphone over here? The lady there and the gentleman back there. Yeah, please. Uh, yeah, please. Yeah. Uh, my question is Maggie Byrne. I worked on human rights in Northern Ireland for a very long time, and I actually think Northern Ireland learned a lot from elsewhere and has got a lot to offer to other jurisdictions. Um, just to sort of in passing question to the chair and to the organisers whether you tried and failed to get any women 
for the panel or you just didn't try. And it's a very obvious panel. Um, and then, in a sense, a question to the moderate centre that I think Lord Tremble has been trying to present um, this evening. Um, I looked up, because Rosemary Nelson's inquiry has reported today, and I certainly haven't read the 500 pages yet, I'm sure you haven't, um, but I looked up that you, in, uh, a few years ago in Parliament you said that you look forward, didn't much approve of public inquiries, but you thought it would be quite useful if they uncovered the truth about her links to terrorism. So I wondered what you think about what should happen to the rogue RUC and security people who, according to the inquiry, legitimised her as a target for loyalist terrorism. I haven't seen the report, and I, I'm completely blind with regard to the report. So you're suggesting something which the report has said. I can't comment on that, mm. but I don't know. I haven't seen that, and I'll be interested to see that. I've just sort of be very careful about how the moderate centre sometimes legitimises attacks on human rights defence lawyers. And I just think, uh, particularly in the absence of a woman on the panel, it would be quite... I wanted to make a reference to her today. Thank sure. you. We have, did actually talk about her, that case today in the, in the seminar. Gentleman uh, over here, please. Um, James Longman, I'm a political conflict postgraduate here at LSE. Thank you very much for your respective talks. I was just going to ask, given the problems that you explained exist currently in Northern Ireland, what do you think the prospects for this social cohesion plan are, um, given and sort of being able to embrace the multiple identities that exist in Northern Ireland rather than overcoming them, as I think is the case? Okay, we'll take we'll, the point and the question. There. There's a gentleman just in front of you there. If you just give him the microphone. just want to get... We're getting... Uh, thank you. My name is Peter, and I was a soldier in uh, Northern Ireland for several years back in the 90s. Um, actually, my interest here is more going back to what Mr. Powell said about who you talk to and how you talk to them. Uh, I think there is, not, is there not a sort of rather big difference between what are essentially local political conflicts, whether it be Basque Country, Northern Ireland, Middle East, and transnational Islamist terrorism like Al-Qaeda, where I think most people would struggle to work out what their aim actually is, and therefore how you combat them is going to be very different from a relatively traditional uh, terrorist with a small t regional local issue. Okay, let's. Uh, I've, got him, uh, I've got other people. I take those. Let's let's take those anyway. Let's take those two at the end. Okay. Yeah, please. Let me just take that last last one. I mean, yes, is the answer in part. Um, but I don't think it means not talking to them, is, 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 I guess, my point. I think the trouble is trying to engage with Al-Qaeda Central, for start, will be rather difficult, because you have some difficulty tracking them down, and if you did, you might want to kill them. Um, but, the, um, but more than that, what would you actually talk to them about, which is why I mentioned the franchises. But I think the interesting thing about Al-Qaeda is the way that it's developing into uh, a series of different groups, from Abu Saif in, in the Philippines to Al-Shabaab in, uh, in Somalia, and, and uh, Al-Qaeda in Yemen and so on. And there are actually transactional issues you could talk to them about, and therefore you could start a dialogue that could then lead to a political dialogue. So I would think that actually that's the way it would be more likely to develop than trying to somehow track down the, the people at the centre of things. Yeah, Richard? The question, I think it was from James, about social cohesion and, and the future. I, mean, I, I think the achievement of a largely segmented something like peace was a huge achievement in itself. And I think making that become solid, making the political process function, even if it doesn't produce better government, at least it's sustained and so forth, is a huge achievement. <coughs> I mean, the next stage of it is to see whether there's some kind of blurring of the communal division. I mean, at the moment, it seems to me the evidence for that is pretty meagre. 
And I think the rewards of playing to a certain kind of sectarian politics are pretty significant. And I think if you look at the degree to which people who are in politics are playing up certain issues and are trying to present themselves as being the muscular defenders of their own community against the other, there are certainly enough rewards in sectarianism to make that a difficult thing to move forward. I mean, my pol political colleagues may want to say something different, but at the moment, the signs of that are not entirely auspicious, I would suggest. Just a wee footnote on that. I think, I think you're quite right that we've got a situation at the moment where uh, the, the parties are putting themselves forward as, as the, the best uh, representatives of their sectarian bloc, yeah. the people that you send in to get the best deal and, and, and so on, their, their appeal to that. Uh, and it's a little footnote about the comment made earlier. Uh, this more aggressively sectarian approach to politics isn't, isn't actually engaging the, the attention of the entire community, only 55% only of them. The other 45% don't want to vote for that sort of <coughs> politics. And in fact, actually, that degree of not being wanting, willing to vote, or anxious, or at least not engaged by that sort of politics is actually quite a hopeful sign. Okay, I've got another there's a gentleman here, and then there's a gentleman at the back. I'll take the gentleman at the back first, because he came in first. And, then, and I, I'll take, ask quick, now I've got one or two other hands just to quickly deal with. Yeah, please. My question's for Mr. Trimble. Um, you made reference to the Sunningdale Agreement earlier on. And I just wondered uh, what were your opinions of it at the time, and would you now condemn mainstream unionists who made a squalid alliance with um, paramilitaries to form the Ulster Workers' Council in order to bring down that executive? And I've also got a question for the panel. Um, did the panel see Jerry Adams' documentary uh, on Jesus, and did they want to vomit quite as much as I did? Thank you. Two very moderate interventions, <laughs> but we need. And there was a gentleman here. Yep. And if you could bring the mic forward to this lady here, and that'll be the last question, I think. Yeah, gentleman here, then lady there. Uh, good evening. Um, I'm um, I'm from the north of England, uh, which seems to be the source of a large number of the Islamist extremists that we've been talking about. Coincidentally, it also happens to be quite a deprived. Uh, well, I mean, relatively quite a de deprived area. I haven't heard anything from the panel in depth about, well, as much as we can get, uh, about whether there is a link between this sort of economic deprivation and sort of um, extremism. I mean, some of the um, terrorists that, that, that have already been tried um, or that have perished in terrorist attacks have actually been middle class, but all around them there's been a lot of squalor and poverty, so I was just wondering if there's a narrative linked mm. to that. Okay. Um Yes, I'd just like to ask the panel how you can have a statement from the panel saying that the Good Friday Agreement was negotiated over the heads of Sinn Féin and with vigorous opposition from them. As one of the Sinn Féin negotiators, uh, I'm sure the panel, other members of the panel that I saw at the time are aware that we participated throughout, that we were centrally involved in the agreement that our party congress voted in favour of the Good Friday Agreement and that have, we have been vigorously protecting and promoting the implementation of that agreement since then. I'm delighted to hear that. Right, okay. Thank you, Barbara. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think the whole panel said that. But anyway. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, um, yeah. Deprivation. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 okay. question, the question about deprivation is a really interesting one. And if there's someone looking for a brilliant PhD thesis to do on a subject, the, the literature on the connection between 
economic deprivation and people who engage in terrorism internationally tends to suggest that there's not a very strong correlation between them, even though some of the surrounding situations are ones of squalor. In other words, you, your average terrorist, if such exists internationally, is not from the worst-off sections of their own community. One interesting thing about Northern Ireland is that there was a quite strong connection between areas of comparative social deprivation, not in a global sense, actual social deprivation, but comparative social deprivation and political violence, in that the IRA and their loyalist equivalents in terms of the, the, the UDA and so on drew stronger support from less well-off areas. I mean, a brilliant thesis to do would be to examine why it is that Northern Ireland doesn't fit. I mean, when people like the brilliant Alan Kruger gave lecture, actually, a series of lectures actually in this room, he, he raised this as an issue which he didn't have an explanation to. If someone's written up an answer to it, I've not seen it. But I mean, it is an interesting thing. I think the broad answer is, yes, there was a connection, but I'm not sure why Northern Ireland in that case is different from some of the other cases you find internationally. Martin, do you want to? Yeah, I think generally, historically, revolution isn't usually made by the people who are most deprived. It's actually mm -hmm. yeah, people who've made some, I mean, for example, uh, the uh, War of Independence um, <coughs> started among the relatively more prosperous area in Tipperary, uh, rather than, uh, and it didn't happen during the famine, though the revolution was a complete, was a complete failure in 1848. Yes, I well remember um, some, um, um, uh, polite but lengthy sessions with Barbara de Brune about Articles 2 and 3 and uh, how they might um, be revised and um, uh, indeed uh, Sinn Féin was um, uh, involved in the negotiation up to one of my abiding memories and I'm afraid it's not one of my happier memories is um, a meeting between Bertie Ahern, Mo Molam, myself, Jerry Adams, Martin McGuinness, two sessions of two hours each um, on the eve of Good Friday going through about 78 different points um, but um, certainly uh, certainly uh, you were fully engaged no question about that David? There was a question about Sunningdale Yes uh, The agreement that we got in 1998 was much better from a unionist point of view than Sunningdale uh, and I will, st I will still make the critique of Sunningdale that I made at the time uh, it was a pity that the uh, government did not pay attention to the absolutely total rejection of Sunningdale in the election in 1974, where we won uh, 11 out of 12 seats on an anti-Sunningdale ticket. And I'm uh, quite, still quite proud of my participation in the only successful general political strike in British history. <laughs> Which is not in 1926, but was it 1974? No. <laughs> Bally Lumpen, you remember it well. Okay, I think we'll uh, draw the proceedings to an end. As they say during the exam, you should never expect people to turn up. But, well, you've turned up. Uh, nearly 200 people uh, to reflect and think about Northern Ireland, uh, a place I'm extraordinarily fond of still, still miss enormously, um, and where I taught for over 22 years, uh, 22 best years of my life, to be perfectly honest. And it's, it's wonderful for me and, and many others like us who have been engaged both academically in our own different ways in the Irish question to in a way, bring it here uh, so that you guys can understand what we're talking about. Um, I really would like to vote a great vote of thanks to all of our four panellists this evening. But without leaving Richard out, I really would like to also extend a special thanks to Jonathan, to David, and to Martin, who in their different ways, with many, many others involved in that process, including Sinn Féin, of course, um, <laughs> I just want to make that short, Barbara, um, did really bring about a major difference to the peoples of Ireland and to Northern Ireland and to the peoples of Europe. So thank you very much and thanks for that.